welcome to the Diagnostics Dialogues. Here we present discussions with experts in diagnostics and specialty medicine designed to keep you up to date with the hottest clinical topics. I am your host and moderator, Dr. Damien Alasia, and today we have the good fortune to be speaking with Dr. Michael Racky, a professor and a world-class leader in the field of neurology and the former chairman of the Department of Neurology at The Ohio State University. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me, Pat. So, Mike, the word dementia is scary for many of us because it conjures up images of old age, infirmity, cognitive decline, memory loss, impaired thinking, impaired social functioning, and loss of our independence. But dementia, or let's call it age-related cognitive decline, represents a continuum of of age-related changes, ranging from forgetting where our keys were placed earlier in the day to a significant loss of one's faculties. As a neurologist who has studied and managed many patients over your lifetime, could you tell us a little bit about what is typical and atypical in the age-relating process in terms of cognitive decline? So that's a very good question. I think there's a couple things you have to realize. If you look at people as they get older, your brain already starts shrinking in young adulthood, yet you're able to continue to function highly in part, I'll say, because of experience, right? And so when you talk about things like forgetting where your keys are, maybe forgetting an appointment, that's very different from getting lost, say, on your way home when you've done that hundreds of times, right? And so clearly there's a difference between the first kinds of incidents and the the latter. When you think about dementia, you have to think of it in a couple of ways. I was always taught that it was typically a progressive disorder, right? So when you think about Alzheimer's disease, you think about Lewy body dementia, or primary progressive aphasia. These are all disorders where the patient slowly gets worse and clearly has increased cognitive problems. And if you were to do an evaluation, which includes often nowadays uh, an imaging evaluation, like a CT scan of the brain or an MRI of the brain, you'll see that the brain has already started to shrink significantly. Think about the neurodegenerative disorders. What happens is that you're seeing increased loss of brain tissue faster than the normal aging process. And the other thing I think that's important to point out when you think about dementia, it's very different when you think about, for example, a stroke, right? So I can have a stroke in a part of the brain, but the rest of the brain is still functioning normally. And I have a very specific area of the brain that was lost, and I will have cognitive dysfunction perhaps that's related to that area. But that's very different when we think about dementia and particular Alzheimer's disease, where it's more of a global dysfunction, starting with memory and what we call executive function, your ability to be able to plan out steps in something that you need to do and that you used to be able to do, and now you're not able to. So Mike, when you talk about memory and executive function, it sounds like you're talking about a degradation of function moving from the midbrain, you know, up through the forebrain and then the prefrontal cortex. Is that correct? 
So when we think about somebody who has Alzheimer's disease, we think about somebody who has recent memory problems, but early on, they're still very pleasant to have a conversation with. And otherwise, their neurologic exam is pretty normal. That's different from, say, a person who has Parkinson's disease and subsequently has dementia. So they would have Parkinson's disease for several years, presumably because they've lost neurons in the substantia nigra. And it's then subsequently that they begin to have cognitive dysfunction. And so one of the things that's important, and for example, you can have what's called Lewy body. So Lewy body dementia is when the dementia comes first, but then they subsequently do become Parkinsonian. From a pathophysiology perspective, it's still the same thing. There's aggregations of alpha-synuclein or Lewy bodies in the brain, but the clinical presentation is a little bit different. All of that now is becoming relevant because we're beginning to develop treatments that are able to target these specific pathophysiologies. That's the important thing to recognize is that before it was more, I just want to say an academic exercise to make the correct diagnosis. But now when we have specific treatments for these disorders, it's much more important to be able to make an accurate diagnosis. So let's focus on Alzheimer's specifically here. When we talk about Alzheimer's, I want you to take us into that exam room, if you will, when you're asked to evaluate a patient with cognitive decline. And you know the general topic is going to be Alzheimer's. You're there as the clinician to diagnose it. What are you looking for? And what does the patient look like? How does the caregiver respond to you in this environment? And what tools are available to you to make that diagnosis? First thing that I think is important to point out is that you have to have collateral history. So very often, a person with early Alzheimer's disease doesn't really recognize there's a problem. As far as they're concerned, they're still able to function. And they often are able to function in terms of activities of daily living. They might still be able to go shopping and and do things like that. But more complicated tasks, they're no longer able to perform. And it's often the spouse who will come in and describe things that the patient is doing that seem to be abnormal. As you get a little later in the physical examination, there are things called frontal release signs, but those are typically in more advanced cases. And early on, it's often sometimes a little bit difficult to know Now, there are certainly cognitive tests, and there are, you know, brief cognitive tests that one can perform, like the MIDI mental status examination, where that gives one a good screening tool. But I would say that often for early patients with dementia, it's tough to to see that there's a problem in the exam room, and it's really important to get that collateral history. But then, of course, the other thing, as you do that evaluation, one of the things we always evaluate for are there reversible causes of dementia. And that's typically looking for things like vitamin B12 deficiency, folate deficiency, you know, are they hypothyroid? And if those things are all normal, then it becomes much more apparent, perhaps. And, you know, when somebody has dementia, there are often other kinds of features that might indicate the type of dementia the patient has. Are there 
say, prominent hallucinations? Are there other behavioral variants where they have a difficulty recognizing things in space that would suggest the type of dementia that a, a patient might have? I really think that one of the things that's been very clear as we're getting involved in testing for Alzheimer's disease is that you can have an idea based on a clinical exam what the patient has. And often even experts in dementia have a difficulty in identifying exactly what the patient has. And there was a study years ago, the CIRAD study, it showed that many patients had features of, for example, both Parkinson's disease pathology and Alzheimer's disease pathology. It wasn't just that you have one disorder or the other. And so that would make sometimes the characterization of just on a clinical basis more difficult. And that was then one of the reasons that as we knew what the pathology of these disorders was, that people began saying, well, we need to get biomarkers so that we can be very specific in knowing what are the various features of these different disorders. And then perhaps how do we try to tackle these diseases therapeutically? So I'm not hearing any specific telltale signs for dementia, given the complexity of what's going on in the brain. But what are the reasons that people would actually seek out help from a neurologist? I would say that it's often that they or a spouse or a family member notices that they're having memory problems when the patient may not necessarily recognize it. The patient sometimes will mm -hmm. say, you know, and again, a lot of it depends also what does the patient do, right? So I can tell you as an example, I had a patient who worked surprisingly enough as a maid in a hotel and she had vitamin B12 deficiency, but she could do her job as a maid in the hotel until she really started having issues with cognitive dysfunction. And once we treated her, vitamin B12 deficiency, she was able to do that. That's very different, I think, than if you're a physician or a lawyer or have some job where your cognitive ability is your most important asset. And I think it's often in when you have an underlying dementia or cognition problem that the type of work you do, it's going to become apparent earlier than maybe in another disorder because of the complexity of the type of work that you do. Let me pivot here and ask you about what is the patient experiencing? Pick up on that point, you know, the, you know, when they talk to you, are they scared? Are they, are they in pain? Are they confused? What are they doing? So I would say that, for example, the lady with the B12 deficiency, I don't think she was necessarily scared. I think that one of the, the other things that's interesting about Alzheimer's disease and cognitive dysfunction is that often very intelligent people can recognize there's a problem, but they also for a while are able to adapt. And it's once they're no longer able to adapt that either somebody, a colleague at work figures out there's something wrong or they begin to recognize they're just making mistakes that they didn't make before and that there is an issue. I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that 
we have something called pseudodementia that is because of underlying depression and that it's the inattention that is associated with that depression that everybody else thinks, oh, maybe they have Alzheimer's disease. And sometimes that's done either because they are sent to a neuropsychologist. And then when you look at the neuropsychological testing, it becomes clear that these issues look more like a patient who has underlying depression and you treat the depression. And often then their cognitive function improves dramatically, right? So I think that's the early on, I think those are kind of the big things. You're looking for what are the reversible causes of dementia? You want to make sure they don't have underlying depression that's responsible for their cognitive issues. And I think that's now one of the other things that as we now are entering into an era where we've had actually now CSF tests for many years, but now that we're able to actually do a blood test, I think that gives the physician some encouragement, like if if they don't have biomarkers that are indicative of a neurodegenerative disorder, perhaps this is something where I can really help this patient. If I'm seeing a patient and I'm a primary care doctor, I'm a neurologist, and somebody is saying my spouse, my loved one has dementia or is slipping a little bit, what are some of the reversible causes of dementia that I'm going to check for? That's a very good question. I think we mentioned earlier some of the things like vitamin B12 deficiency, hypothyroidism, tertiary syphilis, folate deficiency. Sometimes you could have underlying vascular disease. So those are all things that with imaging and blood tests that you can evaluate for, right? The other thing that's become very clear is that there are disorders like diabetes, and I'm thinking more now of type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance, Mm -hmm. that when people have those disorders, they're more likely to have problems with neurodegeneration, right? And so by trying to uh, treat those disorders, you're often helping slow down neurodegeneration. I think now people have recognized, while it's not like all the studies, but I would say it's very clear that if you have a low vitamin D level, you're more likely to have neurodegeneration and that that could potentially accelerate a, a diagnosis of something like Alzheimer's disease. And then for a lot of these disorders, you know, when I talk about vascular dementia, I mean, that's, I don't want to say it's a controversial topic, but clearly there was a time when people used to use the term multi-infarct dementia and a patient that didn't really think they had any strokes. But if you looked at their imaging, they had multiple little lacunar infarcts in their deep gray matter. They looked and said, well, you know, if I treated their hypertension, I treated their diabetes, I had them exercise, I had them quit smoking. I think if you looked at all those kinds of risk factors that you could push back a diagnosis of dementia, right? I mean, one of the things that's kind of interesting, it's not entirely clear that you can correct it totally with taking vitamin D. Some of it has to do with sunlight exposure. There does appear to be a little bit of a difference in how people respond to vitamin D based on skin color with the idea that the darker skin color might make you more likely to have a lower vitamin D level because it's harder for you to convert to the active form of vitamin D. There are a lot of factors that you can try to help that are more lifestyle that can help in terms of 
maintaining cognitive function. So I'm thinking about, you know, the way we were trained as physicians, we were trained to manage disease, to identify disease and treat disease. And we weren't taught very much about healthy lifestyles, about managing your health and wellness. And what I'm looking at here seem to be diet related or lifestyle related, B12, hypothyroidism, you know, folate deficiency, vascular disease related to diabetes, which is related to obesity, insulin resistance, vitamin D deficiency, you know, and, and people can also talk about hyperlipidemia and the like. So when we talk about the reversible causes of the diseases, I think that we've identified potentially reversible ways to at least if we can't reverse the disease, we can at least forestall some of the bad effects of cognitive decline. And just to summarize, when I go to a primary care doctor, my internist, it's probably prudent to check B12, your thyroid, your folate, diabetes, insulin resistance, vitamin D. I'm not trying to create a diagnostic pathway here, but it just seems to be a good way to manage your health and well-being. Is that correct, Mike? Oh, yeah. And I would say, I mean, one of the biggest things that I would also, uh, physical activity, okay. uh, exercise. One of the things that's interesting, there have been several studies looking at things like dancing, and I think it's all related to physical activity. And then larger studies where they looked at whether you did more intense physical activity versus less intense, that the more intense physical activity appeared to benefit those patients more in terms of maintaining cognitive function, right? So there's definitely a link to that idea that if I exercise and I try to, and that exercise helps with things like hypertension and type 2 diabetes, that those are going to be things that are going to help me in the long run in terms of my cognitive ability. All right, so let's move from the reversible causes to the irreversible causes or the progressive causes. And what's going on in the brain? What's the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's dementia? When you look at a person who has died of Alzheimer's disease, there are things that, first of all, the brain is very atrophic. And if you look in the microscope, what you see are what we call the amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles that are present in the neurons uh, that are characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. It used to be that we thought of Alzheimer's disease as a pathologic diagnosis. It has become clear now that we are able to make that diagnosis through imaging techniques like a PET scan. We're able to actually use markers that will label the plaques, the amyloid plaques within the brain or the neurofibrillary tangles in the brain that can specifically look at metabolism within the brain and identify whether certain areas have low metabolism associated either with Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's disease would be in the hippocampus and in the parietal lobes. But if you look at something like primary progressive aphasia, then we would have very specific areas like the angular gyrus that was hypometabolic. And then what became clear is we could actually look at the spinal fluid, right? And you could see that if I took normal people's spinal fluid and measured the amount of a specific amyloid peptide, A-beta 1 to 42, that 
that level of amyloid got lower in the spinal fluid with people who had Alzheimer's disease because that peptide was binding to other amyloid peptides and forming the amyloid plaques within the brain. And so we were able to measure both the amyloid and the tau that's in the spinal fluid as a biomarker for Alzheimer's disease. And it's been recently that you can do the same thing in the blood, in the plasma. And clearly, you know, when you wonder why did it take so long to be able to do it in the blood, instead, I'm sure you've seen spinal fluid. Spinal fluid is clear fluid. There's not as much protein in the spinal fluid as there is in the blood. And so when you have really minute amounts of protein, it's much harder to measure it in the blood than it was in the spinal fluid, particularly because in the spinal fluid, the levels were higher. It's diluted when it's in the blood. The other thing that's become clear is there have now been over 20 clinical trials that have failed in trying to use monoclonal antibodies to remove amyloid from the brain in patients who had symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. And I think the problem is, is that by the time you have symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, and like if I say moderate or severe dementia, you've already lost so many neurons and lost so many synapses that even though these antibodies were able to remove amyloid from the brain, it was too late. There had been too much damage done. And while a little bit controversial, if you look, I mean, aducanumab was clearly able to remove amyloid from the brain. And if you had the right dose and you were early enough, maybe there was some clinical benefit. And that's really important from the perspective now with the biomarkers. Because if you think about the, the, as you have these amyloid peptides, there's a point at time where this process starts, perhaps 20, 30 years before your symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, you start making these amyloid plaques. And if I, at that time, I'm able to measure in the blood or spinal fluid that the amyloid is already getting deposited. But if I do a PET scan and I don't see the amyloid yet, it's happened, it's early enough that the biomarker test is positive, but not enough damage has happened and not enough amyloid plaque has been laid down to measure it by a PET scan. Once I'm able to start measuring that by a PET scan, I still may be cognitively normal. By the time I'm cognitively abnormal, we're so far into the process that it may be then too late, right? And so one of the things that I think is happening now is that we're using these biomarkers to identify patients who are at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And by then identifying people who are at risk, but still cognitively normal, the question is, if we intervene at that point and remove amyloid from the brain, are we able to stop the subsequent steps that lead to the neurodegeneration and the cognitive dysfunction? And I think that you were asking earlier, who's going to make this diagnosis? Before, we had talked about the fact that when we were medical students, you know, you identified a problem and then you treated it. And with Alzheimer's disease, what's probably gonna to have to happen is that the primary care physician is gonna to have to identify the people who are at risk. And then we're gonna to need to do all these things, which might include potentially treatments that are able to prevent Alzheimer's disease. 
or at least manage it in such a way that if I can push the diagnosis back 10 to 15 years, that's going to be huge for allowing somebody to remain independent. I think the biggest issue that people don't realize is that as these patients become demented, they're no longer able to be independent and care for themselves. And then we as a society have to pay for that. And so if we're able to identify those patients early on and intervene in a way that pushes back that diagnosis, you know, we may have to spend some money on treating them, but we don't necessarily have to spend the money that would then be required to take care of them because they're no longer able to take care of themselves. So Mike, I hear the audience screaming in my ear right now. Who's at risk? You mentioned risk about Alzheimer's a number of times. Who's at risk in the population for developing Alzheimer's? And because if I can identify who's at risk at age 40, we can do the biomarkers from what I understand, because we're not going to do lumbar punctures and get spinal fluid. We're probably not going to do PET scans. But if I have an idea of who's at risk, then I can do the biomarkers. Right now, I would say that we're at the stage where we're able to do blood tests, where we would say, look at beta amyloid levels in this blood. We can look at other markers of neurodegeneration like neurofilament light. And we're able then to identify patients that are potentially at risk. Now, I should also point out that there are some patients, and it's probably on the order of magnitude of like 10% of Alzheimer's patients that actually have a genetic reason for having Alzheimer's disease. They have mutations in their amyloid precursor protein or presenilin that makes them at risk. And so there are also genetic tests for those forms of Alzheimer's disease. But then in those people, it should be quite clear that they have a familial history, right? And so treatment of those patients is going to be a little bit different from the spontaneous or idiopathic Alzheimer's disease that's thought to be due to accumulation of beta amyloid in the brain. So do you think there will come a time we check for beta amyloid, neurofilament light, and maybe genetic markers, like we check for lipids or C-reactive protein or you know your CBC? Yeah. So, I mean, and that's a very good point because I often think of neurofilament light as like, it's going to be the neurologist CRP, right? Neurofilament light isn't specific necessarily for Alzheimer's disease. In any of the neurodegenerative disorders, that would be increased in the spinal fluid or the blood. So that would also be true in disorders like Parkinson's disease, but also even things like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, multiple sclerosis, you know, any of these disorders where there's uh, damage to the brain. Uh, but the beta amyloid uh, 4240 ratio would be very specific for Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, as we have treatments that are targeted either specifically amyloid town, we're going to need to be able to identify the specific type of dementia so that we're able then to use the right treatment uh, for that specific dementia. So as I'm looking at the diagnostic pathways or the diagnostic tools available to a neurologist or a primary care physician, looking at B12, thyroid, folate, obviously insulin resistance, hemoglobin A1C, vitamin D, your lipids, and also you know your uh, 
beta amyloid markers, and I'm going to ask you about those in a minute, your neurofilament light, and maybe some genetic tests. Okay, so that's the testing part of it. But when I'm looking at this, you're a specialist, Mike, and you're an academic. We have 6 million people with Alzheimer's dementia right now, and that's the diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia. That's going to increase to 12 million. We don't have that many neurologists. Who's going to be diagnosing the patients with Alzheimer's disease? Because the patient population is aging. My sense is that the primary care physician is going to probably play a huge role. And it's not maybe necessarily in diagnosing Alzheimer's disease, but identifying people at risk. Kind of in this stage right now where the the blood-based biomarkers are to identify people who are at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And then depending on the intervention, you might still be, if you're the company or the in principal investigator of a clinical trial, you might want to have something like still the CSF biomarkers from a PET scan to confirm the, the type of dementia. The other thing that we want to be able to do is see how do these interventions work. And when you're talking about diseases where I may be treating you before you're actually symptomatic, you know, am I going to be able to demonstrate with a treatment that the marker for neurodegeneration, like neurofilament like, actually decreases in the blood or spinal fluid, suggesting that I've actually had an effect? on the neurodegenerative process, you know, and we're still at the stage, we're involved with things like adding the Alzheimer's disease neuroimaging initiative, where we're looking at how these biomarkers perform longitudinally and what happens if you intervene and how does that affect both the imaging, you know, can I actually both reverse the pathophysiologic process of forming the plaques and tangles And does that really result in preserving cognitive function and preventing neurodegeneration? You know, and what we've been able to learn is that if you already have moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, even though these monoclonal antibodies are able to remove amyloid, it's already too late. I can't get that, the neurons back that I've lost. But if I can identify those people whose Alzheimer's disease may be symptomatic 10 years in the future, that in those patients, if I'm able to remove the amyloid from the brain, maybe then I'm able to prevent the subsequent fibrillary tangles and then the subsequent neurodegeneration. And I might not necessarily be able to cure them, but if I can push back the Alzheimer's disease when they become symptomatic 10 or 20 years, then that's huge for that individual. We obviously need to focus on lifestyle, healthy choices, diet, exercise, managing the diabetes, managing our lipids. Take your vitamin D, get some sunshine. Well, and also increase perfusion to the brain, it sounds like. You know, exercise is, you know, high intensity exercise. And I think one of the things that's very clear is that there's almost nobody who has these diseases in sort of its purest form, right? And so that if you take the person who's obese and has type two diabetes and then has some vascular disease, they may not have vascular disease where they're having large artery strokes, but they're having enough vascular disease that it's also affecting 
the neurons from the perspective that they maybe are more likely or more susceptible to neurodegeneration in a process like Alzheimer's disease. And so that if I treat the diabetes, if I get rid of the obesity, you know, if I normalize the insulin resistance and do all these things and push back what would be the time when a person had symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, so that, that's still huge. Even if I didn't have necessarily an intervention that specifically targeted beta amyloid or tau. But, you know, to pick up on that, we do have interventions now and some of the somewhat controversial, um, but let's assume that we do have interventions in the future. When do you think that we would start the treatment? You know, would it be before, you know, at age 40 or 50, it's kind of like the, we treat lipids before someone has a heart attack now. We want a lower lipid. I think it's going to be very similar to that. We're just sort of getting into that stage of the game. I think it's become very clear that we were always, I think, as a field, hoping that if we got the patient with the earliest cognitive dysfunction, but still was independent, that we could reverse the process by removing amyloid. You know, I mean, I guess that's been the issue, right? Between that, if you looked in the aducanumab studies, I mean, one of the things that has to happen is that they basically have to do another study to show that if I take those early patients and give the higher dose of aducanumab, that that really is going to have a clinical benefit, right? the way we're sort of looking at it is we're still banking on the idea that early on, if we remove amyloid and stop the subsequent steps, that that's going to have a significant benefit. That's sort of what some of the other phase two trials and that are now going into phase three with some of the other treatments are, are doing. I think that we're going to get to a point where people are going to look at both the idea that maybe treat the underlying cause of Alzheimer's disease. We still are in a situation where every time I look at papers about things like vitamin D and exercise, it's always not like 100% clear. There were studies that if you gave 2,000 international units of vitamin D a day, you know, that seemed like it had an effect. If you look at the animal models and things like that, seems pretty clear there that vitamin D exercise, trying to target some of the other factors that contribute to neurodegeneration, that they all seem to benefit. And so the issue becomes when you get to humans is, can I tackle all the other things that potentially contribute to neurodegeneration, right? So it's not just that I don't want to be obese. I need to not be obese and exercise and not smoke. And, you know, if I do all these things, I don't know necessarily if I'm at risk for Alzheimer's disease, I completely eliminate that risk. But if I push it back a few years, that's still of benefit. And then if I use a treatment intervention that pushes it back a few more years, can I push back? the onset of, in quotes, over dementia far enough that 
where before you would have had Alzheimer's disease in your 70s and now you don't have it because Alzheimer's disease was gonna start when you were 90, as an example. So what I'm hearing is obviously talk about healthy lifestyles. You know, we know that smoking, obesity, hypertension, sedentary lifestyle, you know, hyperlipidemia, these are all bad and can have a detrimental impact. So if you were to tell the audience, you know, talk to the audience and say, this is what you need to do now to prevent your chances or to limit your chances of developing Alzheimer's or to mitigate some of those risks, what would you do? What would you tell the audience? And then I'm going to ask you, you know, once we have all that in place, tell us a little bit about the medications of the future, because we're, we get focused on the medication part of it, we can do that. But until the medications are really up and running, what can we do now to forestall some of the um, problems related to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's dementia? It really is amazing to me, exercise and physical activity isn't just beneficial in Alzheimer's disease. I can't think of a single neurodegenerative disorder where there doesn't appear to be a significant indication of some benefit. And I think that also goes along with, and probably the other thing that I think we failed to mention is it's not just the, the exercise, the physical activity, it's also the mental activity. Keeping yourself cognitively fit as well as physically fit, I think is important as well, you know? We're certainly beginning to understand the hyperlipidemia, but apparently it has to do like with the adipose tissue secreting the leptins that also interact with the brain, that there is the sort of real interaction with the brain and what was happening systemically that's important in trying to prevent neurodegeneration. The other thing that we failed to mention that's probably important is diet itself, right? I think one of the things that we were starting to learn too is eating the high carbohydrates and high salt, but that's not good for you for living a long, healthy life. There's clearly things that we can all do to help in our overall physical health, and that includes our cognitive health. I want to get a look at the future of medicine and the future of pharmaceuticals in this after we do our diet, exercise, that we get our sleep, that we're working on our weights and adiposity and whatever. Tell me a little bit about the medicines of the future. What do they look like and how are they going to work? So I would say, I mean, right now, the big thing has been looking at, if you talk about what amyloid vaccination and these monoclonal antibodies, what you're looking at is the idea that I'm going to try to remove amyloid from the brain, right? And that hopefully that's, or remove tau from the brain. I think the other way to look at it is, you know, those amyloid peptides come because of enzymes that break down the amyloid precursor protein in such a way that their overactivity results in a lot of these peptides that then aggregate to cause the plaques that are then toxic to the brain. And so I think we're looking at other molecules or other growth factors that we can somehow stimulate uh, to be beneficial. One of the things that we really didn't talk about, but I mean, obesity, for example, promotes an inflammatory environment and it's the neuroinflammation that occurs with Alzheimer's disease is probably an important component in regulating the rapidity of going from 
amyloid plaque and neurofibrillate tangle to actual neurodegeneration, right? And some people think that that's maybe where the vitamin D really is having its effect on affecting the, the neuroinflammatory response. You know, so that, you know, all these things are kind of interrelated, but I think it, it still gets back to what we said earlier, that if we all try to live that healthy lifestyle, that that would help a lot in terms of risk for some of these neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so the medicines are kind of our last resort, but uh, they may be used to treat low-level inflammation at an earlier age than what we're seeing now. Is that correct? There were these studies initially suggest that people who were take like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents that, that somehow maybe pushed back their Alzheimer's disease. When people did clinical trials, it wasn't necessarily as impressive as what the initial epidemiologic data showed. But I, I think there's clearly an inflammatory component to what's going on in Alzheimer's disease and these neurodegenerative disorders, that if you can reduce that, and like I said before, I think that one of the things other than just the vascular component is that with obesity, that also results in sort of a more pro-inflammatory environment that's not just important in what happens in a neurodegenerative disorder, but also it probably contributes to why you get inflammation in your blood vessels and get vascular disease that results in getting a heart attack. We've gone from Alzheimer's to a pro-inflammatory environment. We've talked about beta amyloid, 4240, tau. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here, Mike. And what do you want us to remember as an audience? What do you want me and our colleagues and the audience here to talk about with our friends and family and colleagues? Well, I, I still think the takeaway is probably to live that healthy lifestyle, for one, but that the we're probably on the precipice of having this kind of breakthrough that we've been looking for, right? In tackling the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease and some of these other neurodegenerative disorders. And I think when that happens, that that is going to be huge. Mike, I can't thank you enough for the work that you've done, your commitment to your field and the contributions to neurology and medicine at large. And I just want to thank the audience for allowing us to spend time with you. That's it for this episode of Diagnostics Dialogues. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on LinkedIn for more cutting edge content and to engage with the physician guests from the program. Be sure to visit our site, questdialogues.com. Until next time.